foundation. He is a firm foundation. Morning. Um, if you will turn in your Bibles with me, um, we're looking at uh, we're still in one Corinthians and we're at chapter three. Um, if you're looking in the pew Bible, that's eleven thirty-two, uh, one thousand one hundred and thirty-two, page number. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Father, these words 
are just as true now as they were then, what other foundation could we turn to but the one that's been laid by your Son? As Ken was praying, Lord, we're reminded that the wood that went into that water symbolizes that cross that brings that sweetness, turns that bitterness into sweetness. For apart from it, we are lost and without you. And yet, because of that wood, we are saved. Because of that sacrifice of your Son, we can drink that sweet water. So, Father, would you be with us this morning as we turn to your Word, looking for wisdom, looking for help, looking for truth, looking for words of life, words that are sweet and not bitter. Would you minister to our hearts this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, back, uh, I had a friend back in 1999 who, this is funny, we're all kind of clumped over here, aren't we? Just noticed that. Everyone's sort of in that corner. There must be something over there. Is it the smell of the breakfast foods? Uh, back in 1999, a, a friend of mine visited a, a historic church in um, St. Andrews, Scotland. Uh, and when he visited there, there were only a handful of little old ladies in the church. And my friend asked, he said, you know, what's going on? What's, 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 happened, with, uh, what's happened with this church? And the elder explained that the church went from a, a really large congregation uh, to these little old ladies because of a, a feud that happened, a, a division between the organist and the pastor, and it was never resolved. The pastor would leave the hymns on the organ and then he would leave and the organist would come in after the pastor had left and he would come in and he would practice and they would never really interact with each other. And this went on for years. People in the church even tried to reconcile them but to no avail. Eventually the congregation became divided and they started taking sides between the organist and the pastor. Uh, People began to leave the church, and in the course of time, this beautiful, magnificent church, this beautiful, magnificent building that was once filled with people and filled with praise was reduced to about ten or so older ladies, creating this terrible division. And Paul knew that this type of division was seeping into the Corinthian church, and so he writes his First letter to Corinth to discuss the issues that they are struggling with. But if we read this letter that Paul's written to the Corinthians as only a list of laws and a a list of do's and don'ts, uh, then we will have completely missed the purpose of Paul. We ended last week looking at the great divide between uh, mankind's wisdom and God's wisdom. How God's Holy Spirit searches and reveals and inspires and enlightens. And through all of those, He opens our eyes to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is trying to get these Corinthians to see this truth. That is the foundation that he is putting down for these Corinthians and for us as well. Remember the gospel. Remember who you are in light of it. Remember to whom you belong. 
And armed with that information, the church can grow in maturity and be used well by God. In chapter 3, Paul comes back to this issue of division that he had started out with in chapter 1. This issue of division within the church specifically. And what is the issue? What is the issue at the root of all of this conflict that's taking place? The Corinthian church is not acting according to the Spirit, but is acting according to the flesh. They are Christians. He does call them brothers in the letter. But then in verse 1, he deals this blow by telling them that they, he will not address them as spiritual, but as worldly or fleshly. Now, to clarify, that word spiritual is, is tossed around quite a bit nowadays, and uh, often it, it doesn't mean what we think it means, or, or it's been completely twisted and misused and abused. People say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. What, what does that even mean? You believe in spirits and magic and afterlife, but it has no author? Or if it has an author, you don't know who that is? You believe in angels and demons, but you have no idea who they are or what they are doing? This is crazy. I read an interview with um, a popular musician, Marcus Mumford, from the band uh, Mumford & Sons. And um, all of his lyrics seem to be pointing to his belief in Christianity of some sort. Uh, You know, lots of language of God as the king and uh, talking about serving him and light and darkness and lots of contrast. Uh, His parents also happened to be the head of the Vineyard Church movement in the UK. And this interviewer asked him uh, about all the religious overtones in his music, in his songs. Mumford said he didn't describe himself as Christian, but said all of his songs are more spiritual. Well, that foggy, vague, unclear term is not the one that Paul is using here. Paul just explained the amazing work of the Holy Spirit of God in the previous chapter, and that is what he's talking about when he says spiritual. Are you controlled by the Spirit of God having the mind of Christ, or are you controlled by the flesh, your old nature, who you once were, when you make decisions throughout your day, uh, when you're pressed on all sides, what or who do you ultimately turn to, submit to? He then calls the Corinthians infants in Christ. They have experienced this new birth uh, in the Spirit, but they have remained spiritual infants. They have remained spiritual babies. This is a big thing for us here at this church. We don't want you all to be or become Christians here and then just remain spiritual infants. How, how does that grow the church? How does that, uh, how does that help biblical community? How does that help us to evangelize? How, how does that help us look different to the outside world? If we all came in and we just sort of remained stagnant in our faith, if we gathered together and we sang some songs and then we all went home, 
How would that be any different than if we were uh, fans of a sports team or some sort of uh, members of some sort of club? Uh, No one goes to their friends who's just joined a club and says, Boy, you seem so different. You you know, your, your, your whole attitude and your whole demeanor and your whole outlook on life has changed. No, that's what happens in the church. When we grow in maturity and grace, because we no longer have to submit to our old nature. If you remember my example at the end of last week, my friend David, whose life had completely transformed and his friends didn't quite get it, but they saw that he had changed. He had a different path. Because now he has that mind of Christ. But the Corinthians... You see, the Corinthians were coming in and they're eating all this food at the Lord's Supper without any grace or care or reverence. Uh, They were taking each other to court. They were fighting with one another over which teacher they followed and which teacher was better. It was crazy. And that's where Paul picks up here in verse 3. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What does that mean? Aren't these only human standards and not divine? To compare teachers, to essentially put them at odds as if it were a competition. Imagine uh, the Apostle Paul walking into any Western church today and spending some time with the people. And after some time, he says, uh, your behavior is carnal. Uh, You are controlled by your sinful nature and not the Holy Spirit of God. You are like spiritual babies uh, never having grown up. And you're not acting You are acting with an ungodly mindset and not the godly one that you have been given. Why would Paul say those things to a church? Is it that he's just a bitter old man and he has nothing better to do? Uh, Is he like the legalistic church lady who sort of looks down her nose at anyone who's acting out? I grew up with a fair bit of those. Now listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 about why he does what he does. We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. That's the aim. That is the goal. It's working for your good, for the church's good, and for God's glory. He's been called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to help the church grow in maturity. Reminding us that we, we have these new standards. In picking whose side you are on, if you're with Paul or Apollos, you're reverting back to your old nature. That's the way that the world works. That's worldly wisdom. Did you know that you can actually bet or wager money on nuclear war? 
don't know what the point of that would be. And you're not going to get your money if it happens. In Taiwan, you can bet on whether sick people uh, will die or survive. Um, you can bet on who the next pope will be. You could bet on who the next James Bond actor will be. My personal favorite, you can bet on the next Kim Kardashian and Kanye West baby name. If you won that, would you actually admit that that's how you made your money? That you, you guessed that correctly? You see, the world craves competition. The world craves competition. And now Paul is going to give the church, these Corinthians, three picture images of the church to help them and us as we consider what the church is. That we're not the world. We are separate. We are other. We are different. A field, a building, and a temple. You are God's field. Verses 5 to 9. Paul says... What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, and the Lord assigned to each his task. We live in such a celebrity culture, don't we? We love putting people up on a pedestal, and then tearing them right back down again, and then putting someone else up on a pedestal. And this happens even in the church. Even here. Some people come because they are Michael Youssef fans. And that's the only reason that they come. They don't connect with the church, but they just like Michael Youssef, and so they're Michael Youssef fans. And I'm sure if Dad were here, he would agree it's not about the leader. It's about the message. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. The seed is planted, the plant is watered, but the growth is given by God. Planting and watering are not really high-skill tasks. They don't require a Ph.D. in soil management. They don't require a doctorate in water usage. They are tasks that require people to do them. But the hinge is that the most important part, the growth, isn't done by human hands. It is the work of God. So, verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. We have the work ahead for us. We members of this body, we members of this church, we have work ahead for us. And we will either put up our hands and say, here am I, send me. Or we will say, there they are, Lord, send them. You are either blessed by seeing the way that God can use you or you are not. But at the end of the day, it's not you or I who are growing people It is God. He allocates the task. He gives the growth. He rewards the laborer. We get to be fellow laborers under God as He builds His church. You are God's field church. Second, you are God's building. I know Paul isn't talking about this building or the building where the Corinthians were meeting. It's in keeping with uh, 
this theme of being fellow workers under God. Just as in God's field, one plants and another waters, so in God's building, one lays the foundation while another builds the superstructure. But the two metaphors Paul gives do not make the same point because the emphasis on God's field is that only God gives the growth while the emphasis in God's building is that only Christ is its foundation as we've been singing. Verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. Why would Paul call himself an expert builder or a skilled builder? I thought we were kind of trying to detract from the leaders, Paul. It sounds like you're actually putting your foot forward and I'm the expert builder. Now, the reason he uses that language is because he has laid the only right foundation. He hasn't laid the foundation of Paul and his abilities. He hasn't laid the foundation of Apollos and his eloquence. He hasn't laid the foundation of Abraham or Moses or Muhammad or Joseph Smith. No, it is the foundation of Christ and him crucified. Because it is the only foundation you can build on if you want a relationship with God if you want a church that will grow in maturity. So we don't mess with the foundation. We put our hope and our confidence and our trust in Him. You see, builders also need to be careful what materials they use to build. Because if a preacher or a leader in the church comes along and they start building with wood and hay and straw, metaphorically, Meaning they start building with false teaching. They start building with human wisdom. They start leading people astray. Paul says, verse 13, all of it will be shown for what it was. It will either remain if you built uh, upon the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, meaning you reinforced the gospel. You proclaimed it without condition, but if you built on the foundation of Christ with wood and hay and straw, then it will burn up. Because you built on the right foundations, but you were building with the wrong materials. How many churches around the world have we seen do this? How many have had that foundation of Christ laid, but then a leader comes in and they make it about themselves, or they made it about how to live your best life using human wisdom, or they made it about a political issue, losing sight of what is important and what is foundational. And some of these leaders will narrowly escape. Verse 15, they will... Lose their reward, but not their salvation. Meaning they understood that that foundation was correct, but then they've been misguided and misled, and they've, they've thought it was about them. It's a, powerful wor- wor- it's a powerful word to leaders, and a great word to the church, to be making sure that the church leader builds with the right materials. God's field. God's building. Finally, God's temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was the dwelling place of God. It showed that God was 
with his people. But in the New Testament, God's temple or dwelling place is in his people, in the individual Christian's body, in the church body, uh, local church body, and in the universal church body. So we no longer have the, the symbolism that the Jews had. We have the Holy Spirit of God himself. His Spirit is not in this building as a building. As if this church building were holy. I hear people say that sometimes. Oh, I come and I pray because this is a holy place. It is not a holy place. No, He is in the people who gather in that place. And because of the sacred nature of the Christian community as a dwelling place of God, it must not be dishonored, not divided by jealousies and rivalries, not deceived by false teaching, not defiled by immoral conduct. Because these things effectively destroy a church. They destroy the unique identity of the holy people of God. Not holy that we are perfect, but holy that we are set apart, that we are different. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. It's a severe statement. But then to destroy a church by dividing it, by deceiving it, or by defiling it, is a serious offense. Look at what ISIS did in the Middle East, declaring war on God by destroying His people. Not just the buildings, but the people. It doesn't matter what the church looks like. It can be uneducated, uh, unclean, unattractive people. It can be small. It can be immature and fractured like the Corinthians. But it is nevertheless the church of God, His dwelling place by His Spirit. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. But these three illustrations make up the Holy Trinity. If you've been following along, we see the role of the Trinity in the work of the church. And the downplay of the role of people, especially leaders. What matters most about the church is that God's field, God Himself, causes the growth. As God's building, Jesus Christ is its only foundation. And as God's temple, it is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This is the Apostle's comprehensive view of the church. It owes its existence and growth to God the Father. It is built on the foundation of God the Son. It is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And there is no other community in the world like it. It's amazing how we look at division in the church and and the answer is always going back to God. The perfect trinity, which is united and inseparable and undivided. Sometimes we get, when churches divide and they go through problems and they start looking to outside solutions and they bring in consultants to consult, when the answer all along is right there. It's in looking at God's Word, understanding His character. In the last verses, Paul 
concludes his perspective on the church by discussing wisdom and folly. Verse 18, Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he will become he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Don't chase after the wisdom of this age, which seeks what? Self. Which looks after the interest of self. The wisdom of this age that binds you to the truth that makes you wise in your own eyes. But instead seek after the wisdom of God, which understands that our carnal flesh nature craves those things. And repent of boastfulness and self-centered human wisdom and develop a new humility, one that doesn't boast in men, Because, verse 21, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. You don't belong to Paul or Apollos. They belong to you and are working together for your good. Michael Youssef, TJ, Zach, Kevin, Mike, Rand, Stan, James, Jonathan, we are working for you, for we are instruments that God has provided for the benefit of the church. In comparison to those things, boasting in men looks silly. It looks futile, because when you boast in God, you boast in the one who has started and will finish it all. You boast in the one who gives and takes life. You boast in the one who provides servants who help build one another up in faith. You boast in the one who grows you spiritually into him, even though you do not deserve it. You boast in the one who calls you his own. You boast in the one who laid down his very life so that you can live each day with a new hope and a new future. But you see, the Corinthians forgot all of this. And they were trading gold for dirt. So let us remember, we are God's field where He gives the growth. We are God's building where Christ is our only foundation. We are God's temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If anyone boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to get caught up in personalities and who we like and who we don't like and all these things that detract from you. And division is so easy. It comes so naturally to us. We love, we crave competition. We love to see things uh, promote one thing over another. 
And yet, as a body of believers, you have not called us to that within the church. Within these walls, you have called us to unity. You've called us to oneness of mind and spirit because the body of Christ. Can Christ be divided, as Paul says in chapter 1? Did Paul die for you? No, but Christ did, and he is unified with Father and Spirit. And we march under that banner. And so in our days and weeks ahead, Father, would you remind us of that oneness, of that unity, that we would not promote self, or we would not promote one leader or teacher, but that we would point people to Christ. And that when people would hear that good news, they would see the difference and that it doesn't sound like competition like the rest of the world, but they would notice a soundness, a wisdom, a love. And when people see Christians gathered together, they would see brothers and sisters who have love. For as Christ said, that's how people will know you're my disciples for the love that you have for one another. Oh, Father, that strife and chaos and division would cease only in Christ, only in Christ. Give us his spirit. Give us that mind of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.